once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We love stories where the underdog wins, where the hero snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. This week, we've got one man against an entire army. And, spoiler, the one guy wins. But that's not the point of the story. Teaching team member Caleb Click brings us this message entitled, The King We Need which covers 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 1 to 23. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 14, we're going to have some fun. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. This is one that I fell in love with as a little boy, but God has given me a deeper love for as I've grown older. Because this is the text in seminary that I remember reading and realizing that what Jesus said in Luke 24, that all the scriptures, all the Old Testament, it speaks of me. This is the one where I really begin to realize that was true. Because this is a text that from beginning to end is all about Jesus. And before we start reading, I just want to set the stage. Israel has just received their first king, this man named Saul. And they are being threatened by an enemy that is bigger, faster, stronger in every way than they are. And they think they are about to be overwhelmed. And that's where our story begins. Chapter 14, starting in verse 1. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah. In the pomegranate cave at Migron, the people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky, literally in the Hebrew it's toothy crag, on the one side, and a rocky, toothy crag on the other. It's the visual is a mouth. He's crawling down into a mouth. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, these Philistines. It may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, and the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, we'll show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan. 
and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people, the garrison, even the raiders trembled, the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, count, see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Basically, I'm going. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth-Avon. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we are grateful this morning, Lord, that you have not left yourself without a witness. Lord, you have given us your word in the Old and the New Testaments, Lord, that we would know you not in part but in whole, that we would be able to feast at the greatest of banquet tables. And Lord Jesus, we pray as we come to this text that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to that would long for the Savior that we see enclosed therein. Come, Holy Spirit, speak through me in my weakness and in my brokenness, and take us and draw us to the throne of grace. We pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. When I was 16 years old, my family moved from Plano, Texas, to Johns Creek, Georgia. Now, That is a tumultuous thing to happen in the life of any junior in high school. Nobody likes moving in the middle of their high school career. But that was especially painful for me. You may not guess this because my job means I get in front of lots of people and talk to them. And I also meet with lots of people. But I'm not naturally an easily sociable person. And here's what I mean by that. You put me in a crowded room and say, go meet people, I'm going to panic. I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. It's frightening to me. I need to kind of slowly but surely kind of make myself feel secure. In high school, it was worse. I was shy. I had been bullied really badly in middle school, and so I was terrified of rejection. And so when I showed up in the halls of Chattahoochee High School, knowing nobody and realizing that nobody knew me, I was petrified. I was afraid. And so I did something that's going to sound to you really, really dumb. But to me, it felt like the only thing I could do to stay secure. Every day, I would ride the bus from my house to the school, and I would arrive about 45 minutes before class would begin. 
And I would take my bag and I would sit it down in my classroom and then I would immediately go out into the halls and I would begin to walk down one hall, then I would take a left down another and then I would take a left down the next hall and then a left down the next one until finally I'd completed a loop and then I would just keep repeating it for 45 minutes. Never stopping, never talking to anyone, just trying to look busy because I was afraid That if I sat down, if I stood still, that someone would talk to me. And if they talked to me, they would get to know me. And if they got to know me, they would not like me. And if they didn't like me, they would reject me. And because I was afraid, I went out into the halls and I hid in plain sight. Fear... Fear makes us do funny things, doesn't it? Fear is one of those things that it doesn't just afflict 16-year-old kids. Fear is something that afflicts every single one of us. And I wonder sometimes if one of the reasons that the watching world has such a hard time believing the gospel is not so much that they don't believe the gospel's intellectually true. It's that they look at us and they see a people who live like it's not true. Who just like me as a 16 year old kid are overwhelmed by our fear and functionally we're all walking the halls. Who profess with our mouths that we believe in a God who forgives sins and yet we're terrified to confess them who profess that we believe in a God who rules and reigns over all things. But no sooner does the wrong person or thing seem to get just an inch too close to power, we start acting in ways that seem fairly unchristian. Who profess faith in a God who can raise the dead. But as soon as the smallest thing goes awry in our perfect plan, even just for a day, we panic. We're afraid. 1 Samuel 14 says the reason that we are afraid is because in our hearts and with our lives, we've trusted the wrong king. That's what Israel's done. When we open up this story, Israel is in despair. They are hiding in fear. Their enemy is surrounding them, and it's all their fault. And here's the story of Israel, if you're not familiar with it. God has chosen this people of all the nations of the world. He has blessed them so that they would be a blessing to the nations, so that through them all the world would come to know the love and the mercy and the grace of the God who made them for himself. And Israel, though they have God as their king and they are his people, Israel keeps thinking they can find a better deal. So they keep sinning. And when they sin, oppression and suffering come, because that's what always results from sin, and then they start crying to God. And God, because he's merciful and gracious, God keeps delivering them. He keeps sending these men and women called judges through whom he brings his rule and reign to bear on the lives of his people, and he keeps delivering them from the very fruits of the sins they have committed. But right before we come to this text... Israel finally decides, you know what, we want a little bit more. We don't want God as our king. We want a king 
that we can see. We want a king like the nations who in the midst of this world that so often feels insecure, a king that is tangible, who will take care of us, who will fight our enemies in our time and in our ways. And so they go to the prophet Samuel and they say, give us a king. And even though they are rejecting God as king, God in his mercy, he gives them what they ask for. A king like the nations. A man named Saul. He's tall. He's handsome. His appearance invites confidence. And for a brief moment, it looks like the confidence is merited. He and his son Jonathan take an army of 3,000 men and they attack a Philistine garrison and the garrison flies away and runs and Saul begins to shout to the Israelites, victory is ours, we've won, and the Israelites begin to gather to him and you think, here it is, the king has come, the time is here. And then, like it always does, when we choose our way over God's, things start unraveling. The Philistine army that just fled it turns out they're just a small part of a much larger army. And all of a sudden, that much larger army starts flooding into Israel, and Saul and his band of 3,000 men suddenly find themselves staring at an army of 36,000. And that's just the chariots and the horses. That doesn't include the foot soldiers. Their army, the Philistine army, has the best in technology at the time. They've got chariots. They have swords, spears, and arrows. Do you know how many swords the text tells us that Saul and his army has? Two. They have sickles and plowshares. Israel sees this army coming, and they do the thing that people always do when they realize they are facing an enemy that they cannot defeat. They may have a king like the nations, but the problem with a king like the nations is he's only, he's only as good as his own strength. And it's not going to work here. So they run. The text says they're hiding in holes, in rocks, even in tombs. They are a people who are alive but living like they are dead. And some of them are so afraid, they don't just hide. They actually flee to the enemy camp and they join the Philistines, leaving behind their identity as the people of God. In their fear and despair, they are running for anything and everything they can find to make themselves secure. And what makes it all worse is Saul's doing the same thing. The man they rejected God as king to have, the man by the king like the nations they so desperately wanted. He's just as scared as they are. He sees his army beginning to scatter, his 3,000 men beginning to dwindle, and he sees this army of 36,000 coming. And Saul, he's afraid. And so instead of waiting on the Lord, instead of listening to him and doing what God asked him to do, which was wait on the prophet Samuel to make some sacrifices, Saul, in a panic, decides he's going to do it himself. He makes sacrifices he is not authorized to make, and no sooner does he do it than Samuel shows up, and Samuel says, what have you done? Because you've disobeyed the Lord, your kingdom will not continue. 
And God is going to raise up another king, a king unlike you who is actually after his heart. And when you find Saul in chapter 14, he is a despairing king ruling over a despairing people, a man who is alive but living like he's dead. Verse 2 says that he's retreated to the outskirts of Gibeah. And not only is he retreated, but he is in a pomegranate cave. He's hiding. His band of 3,000 men have dwindled to 600. And then it tells you this little bitty piece that at first actually sounds like good news, but really isn't. It says that at his side, in verse 3, is a priest. It, It says this. Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. Now, that sounds good, Uh, but I would warn you, if you're thinking of reclaiming some Old Testament names, like Jeff has been encouraging us to do, don't do these. These are bad. Because who is at the the, the head of the line here? Eli. A priest whose sons were so wicked, so depraved, that God cursed him and his entire line and said, I'm going to cut you from the face of the earth. This is not a good sign. This is not the priest you want. This is not the king you want. And so suddenly Israel is forced to ask, Who in the world, if not our king, who in the world could possibly deliver us? And all of a sudden, in the middle of their despair, Jonathan steps up. Where Saul is sitting and hiding in his cave, Jonathan, Jonathan's moving. In verses 4 to 5, see, he's moving towards these two cliffs, these cliffs that are famous for their size, they're famous for how hard they are to climb, and they're the barrier that is literally keeping the Philistines from flooding into the Israelite camp and utterly destroying them. It is this natural wall of protection, this thing that if you're going to stage an attack, you don't do it here, but Jonathan is sprinting towards them, and the reason is this. Unlike his number-obsessed, fearful father, Jonathan's a man of faith. And you see it in verse 6. He said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be, not for sure, but it might be, that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I don't know how y'all are. Maybe you're different than me. I'm a naturally risk-averse person. If you ask my wife, I don't like doing things where I feel incompetent. I don't like doing things that put me in danger unless I absolutely have to. I don't even like changing the blade on my lawnmower because the YouTube video says if I do it wrong, it'll fly off and kill me. (laughs) So when I see people who are not risk-averse, but seem to love risk, like the ones you see on YouTube who climb the skyscrapers and then hang off the edge, I don't have a category for that. That's insane to me. It makes no sense. I don't get it. 
But compared to what Jonathan is doing here, all the people hanging off the skyscrapers, they're normal. Because those are calculated risks. This is death. Two men with one sword are about to go and attack an army of 36,000 plus people. In your own power and in your own strength, you don't walk out of that doing okay. But here's what the text is screaming at you. Jonathan's not the insane one. Saul is. If we think Jonathan is insane, it's because he sees the world more clearly than you and I do. Because while Saul and Israel, and so often you and I with them, are so focused on the size of their enemy, where's Jonathan's eyes? He's looking at the size of his God. And he says nothing can hinder him from saving by many or by few. He's looking at the God who when Israel was in slavery in Egypt and they cried for help, sent a man named Moses and through Moses brought them home. He's looking at the God who in the book of Judges when the Midianites oppressed his people with an army, not of 36,000, but of 130,000, used a cowardly man named Gideon and 300 soldiers to put them to flight. He's looking at the God who, when the Philistines first showed up on the scene, raised up a man named Samson and then a man named Samuel to bring relief to his people. And here's what's driving Jonathan. He's also looking at the God who in 1 Samuel 9 promised his father Saul that through him he would save his people from the Philistines. Jonathan is looking at his armor bearer and saying, God has promised to deliver, but my father is not moving. Who's to say he might not use us? That's not insanity. That's faith. That's what Randy so often talks of when he says we lean out and we start flapping our arms. We go, God, catch me. It's stepping out into places where only the promises of God can hold and saying, Lord, I am weak and I am small, but you are not. Use me as you see fit. That's not insanity. That's to be a sane person in an insane world. And so Jonathan comes to the Lord, and because he doesn't want to presume on his grace, Jonathan proposes a test. He says in verses 8 to 10 to his armor bearer, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. Option one, if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place. We will not go up to them. But, option two, If they say, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be assigned to us. He's saying, if option two happens, that's God speaking. If God speaks, it's done. We obey. Now, catch what the sign is. The sign of God, the thumbs up where God's going, go for it, buddy. It is not, let the enemy come to you in the position where you are strongest and they are weakest. The thumbs up from God 
is if the enemy invites you to come to them where they are strongest and you are weakest. It's to climb down one toothy, craggy cliff and to go into a valley and then to climb up another toothy, craggy cliff. Cliffs so steep the Philistines haven't bothered to try to cross them. Exposing yourself the entire time to people who can throw rocks, shoot arrows, fire whatever they want at you to try to knock you off. And then, if you survive, and that's a big if, you get to climb up on the other side exhausted, two of you, with one sword, to fight 36,000 men. If exposing themselves is insane, this is more so. The Philistines know it. So when they see Jonathan and his armor bearer exposing themselves to their sights, they say the Hebrews are coming out of their holes. Come on up. Join the party. We'll show you a thing. They're not afraid. But they've made a very big mistake. They're doing the same thing Saul's doing. They're looking at the size of the enemy. And they've completely forgotten about Israel's God. Jonathan hasn't. So when they say come up, Jonathan looks at his armor bearer with a big grin and he says, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Let's climb. And so they go down by faith into the very mouth of death. And when they rise up on the other side, all heck breaks loose. Twenty men immediately fall before their one sword and two guys. And I love the description. It says they fall and the armor bearer is killing them after them. So I don't know if Jonathan has given the sword to his friend and he's just pushing people over and the other guy's killing them. Whatever it is, they're falling over and they're dying. And the camp panics. The ground starts to tremble, which tells you that Jonathan's not alone. There might be somebody else behind him. And they begin to freak. Because they realize that they're not fighting two men, they're fighting the living God. And God in his grace and in his mercy, he has come for the sake of his people and he is going to sweep away the Philistines. And not only will he sweep them away, he's going to sweep up his people. Even Saul. When we come back to Saul, things haven't really gotten better. In fact, they get worse. Saul's men tell him that, hey, there's panic in the camp. It looks like good news. The Philistines are fleeing, and Saul doesn't go, oh, let's join the battle. Saul instead does something that should tell you something's still wrong. He says, verse 17, count the men. He's still thinking about numbers. And when he realizes that only two are missing, his son and his armor bearer, which tells him That what's happening is not because of the two men, but because of their great God, which should bring back the echoes of the promise from 1 Samuel 9. I mean, he's the one it was made to. Saul still doesn't move. Verse 18, he says, bring the ark. Now, that, kind of like having a priest with you, that sounds good. It's not. Because why was Eli's family condemned? Because... They took the ark into battle, not because they were commanded to by the Lord, but why? Because they were treating it like an idol. 
as a way of manipulating God to fight for his people in their timing and in their ways. This isn't good. And then it gets worse. Verse 19, Saul sees that the panic in the Philistine camp is growing. And he turns to the priest who is presently going before the Lord and trying to figure out what the will of God is. And he says something that sounds innocuous to us, but is really, really not a good sign. He says, withdraw your hand. In common English parlance, it's shut up. I've made up my mind. Where Jonathan believes the Lord, and because he believes him, listens and obeys him, Saul does not believe the Lord. He does not listen to the Lord. He silences him. This may be the king Israel wanted. It's not the king they need. And then all of a sudden, and don't miss this, even Saul, faithless Saul, seeing the victory that God's grace is bringing to the faith of one man, even his own son, Saul gets swept up in a victory that he did not win and he does not deserve. And even Saul, who's been sitting, starts running. And the grace that sweeps him up, it sweeps up Israel too. The Israelites, the text says, start coming out of their holes, even out of their tombs. Literally, they are the dead who are coming to life. And then verse 21 says something absolutely beautiful. It says that the people who betrayed their own countrymen, the ones who went and hid the Philistine camp, the ones who were so afraid they even renounced their God and said we would rather be with the uncircumcised Philistines who are not God's people than stand with God's own. What do they start doing? They start coming home. Because their enemy has been defeated. And not only their enemy, but their fear. And verse 23 says... All of this has come from the hand of the Lord. Notice what's happened. God's grace through the faith of one man who descends down into death and then rises up on the other side has swept his people into a victory that they did not win and they did not deserve and catch what's happening they're starting to repent if you aren't hearing the gospel echo I don't know what story you're listening to because this grace this grace that is sweeping up Israel this grace that comes to the faith of one man acting like the king is actually supposed to act that is the grace that sweeps us up as well because why is this story here? Why is this story sitting here in our Bibles? Why has God given this to us? And it's for this reason. Because the king that we see in part in Jonathan, that we get a taste of, just a tiny taste, that's the king that not only Israel needs, that's the king you and I need as well. You know, when I read this story as a little boy, I read this the wrong way. 
When I read this story, I was Jonathan, and then everybody else, that was the other people. I wasn't the scared one. I was the faithful one. That's not the right way to read that story. We're not Jonathan. We're Israel. We're the people hiding in their holes and hiding in the tombs. We're the traitors who are so prone to wander into the enemy camp because we think it's safer there than on the side of the God who claimed us as his own. We're Saul, hiding behind what looks religious but is really just a means of shutting up the voice of God. And here's the good news of the gospel. The king that we need, the king that we see in the shadow of Jonathan, who believes the word of the Lord, listens to the voice of God, and obeys the voice of God, who just sins by faith for the sake of his people, even into death, and then rises up on the other side and carries his people into a victory that they did not win and they did not deserve. That's the king that you and I have in Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is the one who faced an even greater enemy for you and I than Jonathan could have ever dreamed of. The wrath of God revealed against the sin of man, the rulers and authorities of this fallen, broken world, all the powers of heaven and all the powers of hell were arrayed against Jesus and against his people. And Jesus, knowing that we could not save ourselves, knowing that we were the dead who needed to be made alive, Jesus, just like Jonathan said, I will go. And in faith, he went down not in just to a metaphorical mouth, he went into the thing itself, into death itself. And just like Jonathan, he rose up on the other side. And every one of us who has come to him by faith, he carries us with him. Into a victory of infinite proportions. Because he's the king who, as Colossians 2 says, he's the one who makes the dead alive. He's the one who takes sinners who are condemned and who cannot save themselves and who takes their debts and nails them to the tree so that they can condemn his people no more. He's the one who says to those who are so afraid of the rulers and the authorities of this world who think that there are forces out there that are greater than us and greater than our God. He's the one, as Colossians 2 says, who has disarmed every single one. What are you afraid of this morning? Is it that you are so broken, so lost, that while Jesus might be able to save somebody else out there, there's not enough for you? Is it that if your perfectly ordered world starts to fall apart, that the only hope is if you seize control for yourself? Or maybe, maybe you're like me. And while I may not be 16 anymore, and I may have learned to cover my insecurities with more socially acceptable means, 
in my heart and in my life, there are many times I am still terrified of being known because I'm afraid if I am known, I will not be loved. And if I am not loved, I will be rejected. 1 Samuel 14 is God's gift to fearful, disobedient people. Because he's a God who knows our hearts. He knows we're prone to wonder. He knows we're tempted to fear. And through this text, he would turn our eyes from the size of our enemy and turn them instead to see the size of our God who can save by many or by few, but who has saved us in full through one. The king that you and I need, that's the king that we have in Jesus Christ. And it is that king who invites you to share in a victory that you did not win and you do not deserve, to follow him fearlessly by faith. And I'll close with this it would be insane to say no. Father, we pray this morning that you would take this text that speaks of a king who is so great and so glorious and so good, and Lord, you would sweep us up in the grace that this proclaims, that there would not be one in this room who walks from this place in their own strength or power, but instead, Lord, carried by yours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.